Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gotze. The point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest when they come on, identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically affects the life that you experience. And so I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. What it do, fam? Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on one of my most recurring guests of all time, Michael Phillip from the third Eyedrop podcast. Um, and we just get weird. Uh, every time we talk, we ended up or every time we do talk, we end up talking about the hero's journey. And of course, we go there again. We get into Nietzsche, we get into the meaning of life, and we just vibe. And I think that it's a nice change of pace from the normal format where I try to dive into people's stories. On this one, we just riff. And I think that you guys will enjoy it. Um, this episode is brought to you by my journaling course. If you're interested in making journaling a habit, and you think that your stories create your life, as I am willing to bet that you think they do, um, this is the best way that I know about taking conscious control of the myth-making that your psyche does. And I do it every day. So if you guys want to make it a habit, go check it out. It's on my website, ericgodsey.com. As always, I truly appreciate that you guys offer your attention and your love to these episodes I hope that they bring you as much value as they bring me. Love you guys. Namaste. You know, I, I do feel like I'm going to have to get back to thinking like the former, but I'm just so used to, I'm just so used to dipping into the open-endedness. And that actually brings me to what it is that I want to explore with you. Um, for someone who has the type of wonder-dipping mind that you have, what the fuck have you been doing during quarantine? <laughs> like, you know how what, do you structure your days? Oh what are you God. doing? It's, fucking... it's really not as sexy of an answer as you're going to want to hear. I am is not... it the truth? It's as sexy as, as it can be. Well, okay. So, for instance, just before this, I was playing a video <laughs> game with my brother. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's it's a mixture, man. It's a mismatch. And I typically do most of my stuff from home anyway. So, in a lot of ways, things aren't that different for me. It's really... It's the, the periods of non committal open-endedness that are kind of weird because you know you're you're that urge to escape the dwelling is still there but then you can't or at least your options are extremely limited like i've been going for plenty of walks and and whatever but it's just been so much inside time man so much you know just basically i it's weird because it almost feels like you're less obligated to use the time wisely because you know everybody's in the same situation. Interesting. But I guess that's what kind of divides 
people who are progressive and actively working towards something from people that aren't is is what is is the mentality and the narrative around situations like this that you create what is the next big thing on your horizon that you feel called to progress on like the, what's the big dragon right now the book 100% the book um there are things going on that i don't want to say yet because they're they're still too Ooh. you know they're still up in the air so um but hopefully there will be some announceables soon. But yeah, that that's still the thing. And it's very slow moving for various reasons. You know, some are on me, some are on other people, some are just because that's the way this industry seems to work. But but yeah, that's it for sure. Are you writing every day? Um, no. <laughs> I'm not because um there are too many other things with deadlines still that I have to attend to. So unfortunately, that's been not as on the on. I don't think people say on the front burner, but you know, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It hasn't yeah. been as on the front burner as it should be. And that's totally on me. Like there, it should just be one of those things that I that I carve time out for every day. And I've been going in spurts. Like sometimes I'll do it every day. Sometimes I won't. But but yeah, it's it's tough, man, because as you know, when you have obligations, you have to make a living, you have a podcast, you have all these outlets, like, like I've been doing these live streams, these like live think tank uh, live streams, um, sometimes twice a week. I've, I'm caring for my Patreon patrons, you know, it's just there's all these things, man, that you have to do. So something inevitably has to give at a certain point. So you you really do have to be kind of careful with what you commit to at a at a point. Yeah, um the root etymology of commit means to Oh no, I'm thinking of the root word decide. And mm. what it means is to cut away. And if you decide on any one thing, you mm. have to cut away all the things that could have been when you hadn't decided. I'm curious, what does your writing process look like when you're writing? Like when you're in the flow of doing it every day, what's it look like for you? So there's a couple different ways that typically unfolds if it is, you know, if, if I have a section that's in a state where it's a mass of words. And I mean, I'm one of those people who believe the vast majority of writing happens in the editing process Concur. where I'll, I'll just start, you know, I'll have a loose idea and then I'll start exploring it. And then typically something starts to take shape in there. And I start thinking, I think this is really the thing and all of this is bullshit and I don't even know what I was talking about anymore. So I'm yeah. going to take this piece and I think that's really something. And then I'll work on that and manicure that over kind of a long period of time until it feels like it's cohesive. It feels like it went, it, it completed itself. It resolved itself. Um, but also uh, there's definitely an idea generation phase. And I think for that, it's really a matter of just sit down and start writing and just start see what starts coming yeah. up. Because it's like a feedback loop, you know, it's a it's a feedback loop of what's coming in. Like if you like, for example, let's say if if you're back on your reading young everyday kick, it's gonna be pretty hard to not write about that because that's what's going <laughs> in, right? Like that's yeah. your information diet, that's on your mind. So you're gonna start looking at ways to explore that and unpack that. So 
it's kind of a feedback loop of, you know, just open-ended idea generation, see what comes out. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, well, this is all I've been reading, all I've been watching, whatever. So that's clearly what's on my mind. Let's see what comes out. Let's see how that fits into the larger scope of what I've been writing about. So, so it is multifaceted for sure. What are the things that have been on the forefront of your mind recently that you've been exploring? So I told you the other day, I've been um, finally trying to digest some Nietzsche. And yeah. I, I've, done it, I've, <laughs> I've done it on and off, but I've never, I don't feel like I ever really had a super great idea of his overarching philosophy. And, and I hesitate yeah. to even say that I do now because I know that he's one of those philosophers that is almost sure. deified. You know, he's like... I was looking on um, YouTube the other day and there was like a video of Jordan Peterson talking about one paragraph from Thus Spoke Zarathustra for oh, 45 yeah. minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. So people go to that kind of a level with it. And so, so like I said, I hesitate to say that I really have a good overarching idea of his philosophy, but I do have a much better idea than I have in the past. And I'm, I'm surprised how much I'm, I'm loving it. I'm surprised. What are some of the ideas from his from him that you've been dancing with recently that have most resonated and like struck you? Well, also, I think I said this to you via text is I can't believe how much Young and Campbell owe him. Yep. In terms of his, you know, he was the first philosopher to call himself a psychologist. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. Like he he's, you know, he writes about it and I can't remember which which um, work of his. And what he means by that is he realized that you have to do this sort of self-spelunking kind of individuation process before there was a name for it, you know, that you had to go down into the darkness. You had to see where these scary impulses were emanating from. You, you had to acknowledge that you had this shadow work to do again before that terminology existed. But that's yeah. precisely what he's talking about is, you know, confronting madness, confronting uh, murderous, um, aggressive um, parts of the psyche that are left over from tribal times. And, you know, the, and I'm just not aware of anybody else who is talking about that before him. And, and I'm sure that there were people, but it's like he was the most advanced iteration of that in his time by far. 100%. And Freud actually has an amazing quote where he said he had to stop reading Nietzsche for fear that Nietzsche would have basically said everything that Freud could possibly say. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he was so prolific, man. Like he had so like just so many different works and just he covered so many different parts of philosophy as well. And I think I think it's really kind of a shame that he gets boiled down to some of his, you know, the, the whole God is dead quote, especially in the way that it's boiled down because it's 100%. so taken totally out of context. Yeah. And and when you get to the heart of what he really is saying in a larger sense with that, it's it's so fucking interesting, man. It's so yeah. I, I mean, it really is you know, the hero's journey, the individual needing to figure out how to reconnect with the sacred. And that's like, that's still, in, in my opinion, that's still where we're at. 
And I mean, I could ramble on and on about all the other things I think that he predicted, but I, I know you have thoughts, so I'll, I'll let you jump on jump on the horse. Actually, keep going for a moment because I'm trying to pull up the entire God. You know what? No, I found it. Here we go. <clears throat> so this is, I found that when I read Thus Spoke Zarathustra, that the like that this quote about God is dead, fucking like I'm I'm getting goosebumps now, and every time that I really sit with it, it fucking shakes me. <clears throat> and the thing, like Nietzsche, was basically sick his entire life, and he would go for months where he could not write at all, and he was like bedridden, and then he would have these spurts where he could move. And he would always walk the Swiss mountains where mm -hmm. he lived. And he wrote or he got almost all of his ideas from writing. And he lost his mind when he was 40. And yeah. so the like he was he was made a direct like a like our equivalent of a professor with tenure at the most prestigious university in Europe or in, in Germany specifically when he was 20. But I want to get into this quote because in context, it's one of the most profound things I've ever read. And it's, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe away this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? And the thing that I get from what he was saying is, <clears throat> as a culture, with the revolution of the scientific way of thinking, we have murdered, essentially, the part of our psyche that we don't understand that stabilized yeah. us with its stories and its myths about how to be as a human in the world. And that because it is dead, we are going to pay the price. And he actually predicted, like, almost to the T, he said that with the death of God, and I forget exactly where he says this and what exactly the quote is, but the gist is, we are going to have to create isms. And with man trying to create it from his scientific mind, millions of people are going to die. And one of the things that he was talking about is all of us, our psyches, require that we have a supraordinate story that conveys a way of being, about ways of behaving, and that religion is this ancient, ancient, constant remolding of the story about what is the best way to be in the world. And that led to us eventually getting the scientific way of thinking, which taught us how to manipulate the objective world, but not how to be in the world. And then we used that tool to destroy our stories about how to be. And you see the rise of nihilism and the rise of apathy, and the rise of all the isms that we now put as our top story. And he predicted that because of doing that, a lot of people are going to die and suffer. 
Yeah, there there is so much going on in that quote, and it's fitting within this larger context of this Zarathustra character who is this enlightened person who was a hermit, who comes down to preach to the masses about, you know, what what he's learned in his isolation. And they all laugh at him and they all think that, you know, he's a he's a kook and they all think that he's not worth listening to. And when you think of it in that context, you know, this this character saying this, it evokes so many questions like, you know, like what what does this character know? What what is he preaching? What what are we rebelling against? What like what what is next after this religion that we've now destroyed with like you said with reductive quote, we've quote unquote destroyed because he understood that it wasn't so clear cut like you said you know <laughs> yeah. it wasn't so like oh yeah we we destroyed religion and now we're all good and we've evolved and we've moved on to this enlightened scientific reductive disposition he understood like you said that now you know that like even what he's saying in that quote you know what festivals what what sacred rites cuz there exactly. are none. You, you've just you've just destroyed the anchor you've destroyed the one thing that everybody agreed upon that they were all servants of god or whatever you've destroyed that so now you've lost reference points you've potentially you know there's this is one of those things that's debated endlessly is you know that you've but Conceivably, you've destroyed the source of morality. You've destroyed all all things sacred. So you have to, and again, this is a key insight of Young and Campbell too, is you don't just take that away and not form a tremendous existential vacuum. And, And that's what he was pointing toward there, is that now there is this vacuum and now we're all left as individuals to try to figure out what to do with that vacuum. And his answer, of course, was that we needed to build a bridge to the next thing. You know, we needed to become somehow uh, servants of this overman type of being, which is a whole separate conversation, kind of. Yeah. But um, but yeah, there's there's just a lot there, and it's super interesting. And I think it's so weird that he gets painted in this super negative, super uh, atheist light because i he clearly i don't that's not what he was saying yeah no um the last line for me is the line that stands out the most and it's that in order to be even worthy of this task we must become gods and what i get from that is because we have killed the collective story now it is on each individual to essentially create their own religion and that seems to be what the like new age slash spiritual community doesn't even understand that is their call to do, which is we have to create a new story. And each of us seems to have the impossible responsibility because there is not a collective story. Or, you know, I think the resurgence of the hero's journey is the remembering of the collective story that is the most healing story to put at the top. And that the Ubermatch on one level is your potential, the individual that you know you could be and that your life is essentially the bridge to manifesting that. 
And I think that the most adaptive story that we have found to guide people about how to bring forward their potential is the hero's journey. And it's like every time we fucking talk, this is like the only thing that we can talk about because it's just, it's, it's the fucking sauce. Yeah, it is, man. It is. And one of the more controversial things that, you know, in both his philosophy and, and what Zarathustra eventually realizes is that this isn't it for everybody. Most people are going to willingly be part of this pleasure-seeking herd and they don't want to go deep. They don't want to, you know, explore the depths and the darkness. They don't want to hear what he's trying to say. They don't want to go through these kind of self-initiatory rites because it's too painful. The, you know, the catharsis burns too much. And they would just rather go on, you know, drinking and uh, watching people walk tight ropes, which is one of the examples in there. And and eventually, too, I mean, he straight up predicted like almost Unabomber style, like where where we were heading and where technology and science were taking us. And it was in this almost Terrence McKennian novelty chasing hedonic treadmill type of reality where it just kept getting more and more seductive until it literally fuses with your neurology and you can't break yourself away from it. And he knew that this is the way most people are going to go. He called it the the herd with no shepherd, that everybody was just going to go walk in a single file line, chase pleasure, chase technology, you know, chase uh, different physical pleasures, and that they don't want to do this process. They don't want to, you know, better themselves. They don't want to become what he called authentic. And I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. Do you think that this is a path that everybody could tread? Or do you think that this remains for like the few who are really willing to do the work? I think I believe in that. I feel that as far as I understand from what I've been able to see, I do believe that this is the most effective story for every, for every soul, but the percentage of people that are going to say yes to it will be small. But <clears throat> the way that I see it is if even one person says yes to what the hero's journey implies, which is that essentially your task is to feel inside of you where the dragons are in your life and to consciously and courageously move towards them and then die to them to be transformed into something more closer to you, to who you know you could be and that you have to do that endlessly throughout your entire life and that there is no quote-unquote end the end is death <clears throat> but that you can manifest more and more of what that being is with your life i think that if even one person does that well they can improve the world one percent and then they also leave a story that could inspire even one person after them to take the same journey and that i think that if like the momentum of the way stories spread like a virus is that it's only going to take one or 2%. There's actually this idea from Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth where he talks about like the way a wildflower will spread through a new piece of land is the first flower will bloom and there's nothing there to pollinate it and then it dies. But then it comes back and then eventually there might be a second one and then a third one. But then it starts to grow exponentially. And the way that I see that as is, 
it just takes a, a handful of people, like a hundred, to really say yes, to live their life this way. And then they're going to leave a residue that might inspire two people each, 200, and then 400, and then 800. And I don't know how much time we have on the planet. I'm not exactly as pessimistic as most people because I think that there's a lot more people than we feel who are aware of this way of being and are saying yes. And personally, man, <clears throat> I feel that there's a collective conscious and I feel, or a collective unconscious. And I can feel my intuition is that because the earth feels like it's at a crisis moment or like a peak moment, that there's more archetypical energies coming up in everybody who is on the path at all. And that they're being called forward more aggressively. They're being brought towards their traumas and the things that they need to transform in the light of more actively. They're dream like I'm hearing from everybody, you know, because I'm the dream guy and people tell me everybody's dreams are getting more intense, more vivid. A lot of people I know are being called to like finally face things in their life that they've been avoiding because they were able to continue the sleepwalking zombie game that the culture has provided them. And I feel that maybe I'm in a bubble inside of a bubble inside of a bubble, given where I work and where I live and the people who are around me. But I feel at least in my psyche, this collective, like almost like yawning, like there are all these people who are yawning and it's like, they're fucking slowly starting to wake up to the truth of the situation, which is that there is a, how you are each day affects the collective and you know how to be today where you've moved the collective 1% higher towards whatever this thing is that we're being called to move towards. And you also know how to live a day where you go 1% away from it. And then, you know, for me personally, it's like each day say yes, do the things I'm afraid to do, which for me, most of the time is like all of us have conversations every day where we can feel I'm not exactly 100% in my truth. And then I just choose to try to be 100% in my truth. And of course, I have my art, I have the podcast, I have the things that I write and that I create and that the phone calls that I do with people that I coach and also people that I love. But it feels like each day the call is more intense because there's this feeling of potency yeah. in the collective unconscious. Yeah, if you're paying attention, it should be ramping up on a daily basis because guess what else is happening on a daily basis? You're inching ever closer to yep. the doom wall. And I think that that's what's so interesting psychologically and I guess psychically and unconsciously potentially right now is this is one of those collective discomforts that you don't get to ignore. You know, you can yeah. shield yourself so much of the time in our first world temperature controlled, cushioned, like, like, look around wherever you're sitting right now. Look at how many fucking cushions are in that room. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, what if I want to put my butt on that or this? It's like, you know, there's like cushions literally surrounding you from the harsh realities of, of everything. And this is one of those moments where there's a chink in the armor and the darkness starts coming through and people don't know what to do with that, especially if they haven't spent time reflecting and paying attention and 
you know, really getting in touch with that kind of memento mori, they're so taken by surprise. And of course, we're all going to be affected and, and made anxious by it to an extent. But if you're really playing that herd game we were talking about earlier, you're probably immensely cut off. And you, you're all you can think about is when are things going to get back to normal so I can just be comfortable 99% of the time again. And if you're thinking that way, I think you're missing a really, really valuable lesson. And what that lesson is, is the only lesson that this is temporary. Make something of it. Spread love, spread happiness, spread creativity, spread inspiration in whatever way you possibly can or do whatever. I guess if you just want to go out in a blaze of, you know, glory, fucking and spending money, I guess do that or whatever it is you want to do. But as long as I think that is more enlightened than just being passive. I think even that is more enlightened than just being passive because it is not acknowledging the deep state of reality. It's not acknowledging that that finitude, that that finiteness of this thing. And I think that that's the the lesson that everybody should be focused on is is like think of this as a reminder. You know, think of this as a sort of you know, hinting at the end of the book or something, and that if you're not actively interfacing with the process of reading slash writing the story, it's it's just unraveling without you. And that's not a good way to live. That's not an inspiring way to live passively and just letting things happen to you. So yeah, I do I, I do think that that everything you said is 100% true, man. And I actually saw a mainstream news article about dreams and how everybody's having these like oh, wow. cor Corona dreams. And, and I think that it's, um, I think they framed it as sort of a, you know, it's common when you're under more stress or anxiety to have stranger dreams. And, and that's 100%. sort of the, I guess, mainstream way of looking at it. But I think Young would have a little bit of a different... <laughs> interpretation in that he would think that there is some kind of collective energy bubbling up in the collective conscious that's that consciousness that's that's manifesting itself through dreams 100% and the thing that came up most viscerally in me when you were saying that is <clears throat> it seems to be that people who are called to the spiritual path, whatever that means, is that they've had an acute encounter with an experience that viscerally reminds them of the fact that they are going to die, that this is a temporary experience. And then the question is, okay, then what? Because most, like, the only way to really sleepwalk is to live in a way that numbs you so much that you forget the only fact of life, which is that you will die. And it seems to be that we are in an experience on the planet that has never happened before in the sense that we are, we are connected in a way that creates a singular psyche that we've never had before and we have a problem that is reminding the entire motherfucking globe <clears throat> the fact that most of us have been sleepwalking to ignore, which is that we are going to die. And so the story that you put at the top 
of your mm -hmm. hierarchy, your God, <clears throat> it feels like it needs to address that fact. And most of the isms that we are given, like they just completely ignore the fact that everyone is going to die. And so that implies the question, well, then how should I live? How should I live if I know that eventually everything that I have done will be forgotten, everyone that I know will eventually be gone, and eventually there will be no echo of human consciousness given enough time. And the thing that has come up in me that feels like it's impregnated in the hero's journey is that the thing to do in this finite amount of time is to basically sing the most beautiful fucking song for all of the beings who are sharing the same fate as you. And the image, and I think that we've talked about this before, but it came to me on in a psychedelic, is that the, the situation kind of feels like this. We're a little boy or a little girl, and we're on a beach, and we're making a sandcastle. And our entire life and all the things that we do that we unconsciously think are going to make us immortal, this is our sandcastle. But there's a tsunami coming. And a part of us knows that the tsunami is coming. But most people, are their backs are turned to the ocean and they're intently focused on their castle, judging other people's castles. <clears throat> Some castles make them feel good about their castles. Other castles make them feel bad about their castles. They judge people who do it faster or slower. But they're ignoring that there's this tsunami coming. And the tsunami is time. It's entropy. It's eternity. And it is going to eventually wipe out everybody. But the way you make your sandcastle can inspire all the people who can see it. And then the way you make your sandcastle is the most meaningful thing that you can possibly do to all the people who are around you on the beach, which is a beach full of 8 billion people. And it seems to be that the most beautiful thing that you can do is build the most inspiring sandcastle and then build it in a way where the people who are around you as you build it are grateful that they got to be around you. And there's this feeling when I get deep in a psychedelic that I constantly come back to. And it's this juxtaposition of indescribable beauty and indescribable tragedy. And that the tragedy is that most of us are ignoring the fact that we have this one precious life and we have we we choose comfort and distraction and numbing mm -hmm. instead of like you have an opportunity to sing a motherfucking song that could bring love and joy and inspiration to the people around you that could reduce their suffering even a little bit. And that, that seems to be the most noble thing that you can possibly do. And the way you do that most effectively is to face the dragons inside of you, your traumas, your neuroses, the things that keep you from creating the most beautiful sandcastle you can possibly create and that keep you from doing it in a way where you're whistling and giggling and dancing as you do it. And most of us are inhibited from fully expressing our artistic castle making because we're afraid, because we want comfort, and because we don't have a good story about how to alchemize that resistance. Mm -hmm. 
Man, I love that. I love that story about the sandcastle. I love framing it that way. I've I've heard you say it before, but I have to tell you this. So I was doodling as you were talking, and literally the first time you said the word inspire in that rant, I was fucking writing the word inspire, dude. Mm. I was writing it as you said it. That's and that, that was that was one of those like ah moments, you know, where it was just like yep. it just felt like something peeked through, you know, it just felt like a, a moment of oh, like just something like that. I, I don't know how to describe it other than that. Just something peeked through. Like I call that, those that, god wings. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean that that's like what I, that's what synchronicities are. hundred percent. You know, it's just like it's it's kind of like someone reaching from behind and going, ha, you like through like yep. through space and time. It's like it's like your future self reaching through space and time and like poking you in the butthole or something. That's literally what I think it is. Yeah. Like not the butthole part, but that it is, it is your future self. Your, like your astral butthole. <laughs> Jung tried to explain it and I didn't think he didn't do a very good job. He, he at times is not understandable at all, but he, he believed that like the center of your conscious mind is your ego, but the center of your unconscious mind is the self, capital S self. And he believed that that thing existed in a four dimensional or a fifth dimensional space, like outside of time and space. Like it could see time and space as like an object and it exists outside of it. And its highest goal is to help bring you towards like the things in your life that will help you manifest like the oak tree inside of you. Like it's the same energy inside of an acorn that is guiding it to become an oak tree. And God winks are one of like, I'm like a motherfucking detective and I'm trying to search out for the God winks. And the more God winks that I can find in my life, I, I feel like I am on the path. I am like, this is the way. This is that little shimmer in the dark woods that likes, you know, it's like that thing that Link has in Zelda that says, hey, listen, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, by the way, that's sampled all the time in EDM songs. And I always love when that comes up. Have you <laughs> yeah. heard that? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, hey, listen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. But I think we talked about, I think there's a clip on my Instagram of when you, me, and Francesetto were doing that pod mm. at On It, and you were talking about that exact thing, how how Young characterized synchronicity and how it didn't make any sense. And I, I always wonder how much of that is just poor translation or if mm. it's just... Because there, there is poor translation, I've noticed. Like, um, I, I think... We probably talked about this on my pod most recently, but like in um, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, they he uses the the term modern man for somebody who's like an awakened person, like in which is just so confusing because if you ever read a quote that says modern man, you're going to think it just means somebody alive right now. But that's right. not what he means. He means an awakened individual. Like he means somebody who chose to go the path of Zarathustra. He means somebody who is ruthlessly on this path and has done all of the self-spelunking, deep diving, shadow integrating, all of this stuff. That's what he means by that. But for some reason, he or the translator chose modern man. And it's just like, no, don't call yeah. it that. It's so confusing. But yeah, when um, I hear stuff like that, a part of me is like, fuck, I have to learn German. 
I have to go learn German and then I have to reread everything he wrote. Yeah, I have zero. (laughs) But, you know, it is surprising because most people think that most of the words in English come from like Greek or, you know, Latin or whatever. But most words do come from German, like some huge percentage have Germanic roots. So it might not be too bad to learn. But honestly, I haven't even made an attempt. So I'll, I'll just stop right there. But yeah, I think it's so tempting to think in these collective terms, as soon as you have any kind of mind altering experience, it just seems to invoke this way of thinking, this this way of thinking where the edges of your discrete consciousness suddenly become very blurred and malleable and seemingly interconnected to everything like that it suddenly doesn't stop with you and that your borders are non-existent in a way and i think that's why there's this sort of agreed upon narrative among a lot of psychedelic weirdos that is so similar to young even though paradoxically young wasn't into psychedelics and i wonder i i just he had to have had such a weird special on the verge of madness mind, much like Nietzsche, because I just can't understand how you would get there without chemical yeah. intervention. I just, or just so much meditation or whatever. And he seemed to arrive there somehow. And that, that has always perplexed me. Yeah, please tell me. So when he was a medical doctor and he worked at one of the most famous um, mental institutions in uh, Europe, uh, the main thing that he studied for years was schizophrenics. And where most people of his time basically regarded schizophrenics as just basically like broken computers, he really sat with them and he listened And he listened for hundreds of hours of schizophrenics basically sharing their, you know, experience. And that is how he began to see the power in dreams because he he could read like four or five languages and he had read all of the like um, classic educational like myths from Greek and Roman and a couple of other cultures. And as he started to listen to schizophrenics, he started to see that there was this pattern that if you really listened, there were these little gems where it was almost word for word, the like phrases from some of the myths that he had read. Wow. And he, he went to really long lengths to prove that a couple of these examples that he wrote about, there was no way that this schizophrenic that he was in front of had ever read that book. And like one example he gives is a schizophrenic was telling him that if you squint your eyes and look at the sun and move your head back and forth, you will see that the sun has a penis and that the penis creates the wind. Yeah. And literally like a year after that happened, because he took extensive notes, a new archaeologist, a new archaeological dig found a library and one of the books in that library were a set of myths. He bought the book or it somehow was given to him and he read it. And there was literally a myth from some culture, I don't remember off the top of my head, that said that um, the sun had a hidden rod 
that when shooked created the winds. And this is just one example of dozens that he had found over listening to schizophrenics. And then he, he basically had the insight. There is something going on in the psyche that we don't have conscious access to that seems to be shared. And that when you listen to schizophrenics, they are tapping into that in a chaotic way that they can't organize. And also from him working with his clients, he could see that their dreams would that their dreams almost spoke in images the way schizophrenics articulated their experiences. And my hunch is that his intuition got mastery level understanding of how to perceive reality like a schizophrenic. And when him and Jung, quote unquote, broke up, like when they got into a big fight and they basically like, you know, they basically broke up and there's a there's a book on Amazon of their letters to each other and you can see how catty they were. It's hilarious. But <laughs> once that happened for the next four years, and he didn't tell anybody this while it was happening, but this is where the Red Book came from. He started hallucinating daily, both visions and speech. And he would basically ignore them all day. He would still work all day. But then at night, he would start painting and he would start having conversations mm. with these voices and he straight up for four years painted and wrote these hallucinations every day. And in hindsight, he said that all of his major ideas that we now take for granted, like the shadow and synchronicity and the anima and the animus and the higher self and the inner guide came from those hallucinations and those visions or and those auditory hallucinations. And... So I think he basically learned how to tap into the unconscious mind, which is what I believe psychedelics bring into the conscious mind. I think it's the same thing that happens in schizophrenics, is the same thing that happens in dreams, is the same thing that happens in hypnagogic dream vision states. And he learned how to basically tap into that consciously. And I think that's why he did it yeah. in psychedelics. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense, and I don't. I don't want to romanticize schizophrenics because you know when you, when you see one rolling around in poop on a sidewalk in San Francisco, it's not a pretty thing. But I still think there's a kernel of what you're saying that is totally right. There, there's this universal impulse that there, or at least idea that we are somehow extra physically connected. And then when you finally have one of those malleable moments that I was referring to earlier, where that goes from a theoretical story device to a, a, a holy shit, I, I see the strands of it. I see literally the connection. I see something that looks like a connection. And I feel like I intuit, I feel that that's real and that that's there. It's like this, this, I don't know, man. It's it's a tremendous epiphany moment. At least it was yeah. for me. But I think what's so interesting about that example that you gave is I don't know how deeply affected Young was by his falling out um, with um, with Freud. Yeah, I don't know why I have brain farted there. I don't know how deeply affected he was, but I know that a split from a mentor can be one of the most psychedelic weird threshold guardian dark night of the soul things yeah. you know like i remember i i know that you and miles neal probably talked about this but miles neal talks yeah. about his breakup with his mentor as like the 
deepest, craziest, dark night of the soul, chaos moment that he's ever had in his life. And I don't know if it was like that for Young. I don't want to say that it was because I don't know. It seems like it was. But if it was, man, you you could see how that would bring just tons of chaos, tons of turmoil, tons of insight, you know. And what I love is that his story is a story that if people in the modern world looked at, it would change the way that we approach mental health. Instead of taking a pill that diminishes the messages coming from the chaos, he literally turned it into art and faced it for years. And then the result of having done that was the genius insight that led to the creation of his psychology, which is just reverberating so loudly in our times right now. And that I truly believe that barring a super small percentage of people who have visceral acute trauma to the physical aspects of their brain, that all mental illness is the psyche telling the ego, there is something you are not looking at. And that if it's faced by looking at it, being honest about it, and then creating art from it, I really think mm-hmm, that that's mm-hmm. the linchpin there, mm-hmm. that it will transform you and provide you with the tools and the genius for you to create your dream life. But what yeah. we do and the story that we have in this culture is if you are not profound, so there's that quote about there's nothing healthy about being okay in a profoundly sick society. There's this idea that if you are not happy living the life that modernity has given us, which I believe we have, our soul does not want this life. And it's also one of the really interesting things about this whole Corona aspect is that Almost every person that I've ever met in my entire life has lamented the monotony of their life. And then it's taken away from them. And now they're all just fucking yearning for it Mm -hmm. back as Mm -hmm. as opposed to (laughs) reflecting on when I had this. And we fucking do this with relationships and food and whatever. When we have something, it's meh. If it's taken away from us, we fucking crave it. Oh, yeah. And like... We we are the descendants of an unbroken line of thousands of fucking heroic, in, indomitable humans who successfully reproduced in the savageries of nature for hundreds of thousands of years. We have not evolved to live a life where we sit on cushions all day, being inside of cubes that are air-conditioned, looking at screens. Like... There is a thing in us that wants to fucking scream into the moonlight, wants yeah. to go hunt, wants to go conquer things, wants to go solve problems, wants to be heroic, wants to protect the people they love, wants to create children, wants to nurture children, wants to create the foundations for the people that come after them. And when you don't live that life, you don't live that way. I think that the psyche's way of trying to get your attention is what we have now called mental illness. Mm. Yeah, that that is a very plausible, compelling theory, I think. There there are two specific roads I want to go down here. One is this road of the sort of techno-Lucifer, and one is the road of 
expanding upon why you said it's so key to create art from all of your, you know, what what's th that word that starts Dragon with Trump. maladies, maladies. Oh, yeah. That's what I was looking for. And it's, you know that expression, amor fate? Yep. Um, so it was kind of crazy because I was super, I was super into it um, after I heard about it on, I think I first heard about it through Ryan Holiday and then I started reading, you know, the various different stoic uses of it. And lo and behold, guess who else was obsessed with Amor Fate? Nietzsche. Nietzsche, yeah. So when you start thinking that way, when you start loving everything that happens to you, one of, I think, the best ways to oh. wield that philosophy is through not only I love everything that happens to me and it's happening for me, but it's ammunition for my creation. Oh. It's ammunition oh. for everything that happens to me. If you start thinking of it like, oh shit, this is happening so I can say it in a podcast. This is happening so I can paint it. This is happening so I can speak about it at the TED event. This is happening so I can, oh. you know, whatever, whatever the thing is. And if you start thinking that way, it's the, it's the way that intention works and it's why yeah. intention is so focused upon if you are if like let's say you're going to go to a retreat a psychedelic retreat especially you're going to hear the word intention 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 <laughs> intention yeah. intention 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 and at first for me it was kind of like you know what's going to happen is going to happen and i don't even want to color it too much but the thing you lose then is you lose the mythology of the experience. And when I say mythology, I meet it in, in the large yeah. way that I typically yeah. mean it. You know, I don't mean it in like you're making up a story. I mean, you are actively living a tr like a truth, a story, a purpose. And if you don't dare to say, you know, what you said before about how decide is, you know, the etymology is from to cut away. If you don't dare to cut away, if you don't dare to make that Kierkegaardian leap of faith, it's about nothing then. Now it's yeah. about nothing. And shit that's about nothing is not inspiring to the human mind, the human psyche, the human soul in any way. So it's that moment of decision-making, of intention casting, that you can imbue with everything that happens to you in your life and if you turn that into a way to express yourself i think you're winning the game and i do think your psyche is going to reward you it, in my experience it definitely Same. has it's the only Amen. thing that brings me any fucking purpose to yep. my life like if i try to envision my life without third eye drops without those conversations, yep. without the people i've met without the events i've gone to because of that it's like ooh man like it's not it's not great you know it's really not inspiring um but the second thing man so a quick thing that i want to add yeah of course is, of course um i was talking to someone last night and she asked me if i was an optimist or a pessimist and it was just one of those moments where like i said something and i was like oh damn that i, I need to write that down and what i said is i feel like i'm an alchemist and what i mean by that is yes. It's not about if the glass is half empty or half full. It's about with what I have, what can I make to help yes. others? Yes. And I think that that is the most soul imbuing way of encountering reality. And it is a morfati with the intention of what can I make from this to serve the collective? And I think that 
I'm trying to find the right metaphor, and I've been thinking about this for a couple of days, and I don't quite have it yet, but it feels like our, our soul is this thing that if you can calibrate correctly, it, it fucking comes alive in a way that makes you nearly invincible. And I don't mean invincible to death, but I mean completely impervious of mm -hmm. mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I think that the crux of it is a more fati towards alchemizing. Like, I love what happens to me. What can I make from it to serve others? Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm remembering what Nietzsche's precursor to arriving at Amor Fati was. And Amor Fati, I mean, in many ways, like if we're talking about the, the metaphor of alchemy, Amor Fati is the philosopher's stone. And then the, ingre the ingredients of the philosopher's stone are not whether you're a pessimist or an optimist. It's what he called the great health. And the great health is when you take all of life in its positives, in its negatives, in your life, in your death, in your joy, in your suffering, and you take all of it and you say, yes. It's when you take all of it and you say, yes. That's oh. how you get the philosopher's stone, not by deciding if you're a pessimist or an optimist, but by acknowledging the darkness, the light, the joy, yeah. the pain, all of it, and you still say yes, and you still say, fuck yep. yeah, I love it, I love it. You know, and, and th that's hard to get to, man. That is uh -huh. hard to get to because most people want to dismiss the darkness. They want to minimize the darkness. They want to pretend that it's not integral or that it's okay if I avoid it. I don't need the darkness. I'm going to just keep reflecting on the positive. And in, in, in some ways, I love that. Like I just had Marissa Peer on the show, and she's like a really famous... Um, therapist and uh, public speaker. And she's so positive. She's like intoxicatingly positive to talk to. But I think too, there's like utility in the darkness and in dwelling on the darkness sometimes. And it can get gross in that direction. Like that's how you get nihilists and super pessimistic assholes too. But there's some amount of it that you need for reality, you know? 100%. And I could feel that I had a thought that I could feel like, ooh, this is going to sound smart to say and it feels good. <laughs> and it has slipped away. And so it just it wasn't meant to be. Okay. So you said that the next road was the technologic Lucifer. Yeah. And I was just gonna say it's it's so funny that we were just talking about, you know, the this herd with no shepherd, as as Nietzsche called it, you were talking about, you know, just being surrounded by cushions and technology and cubicles and staring at screens. And in many ways, it does seem like that's what's to blame, right? I mean, you could blame technology for basically everything, overpopulation, destroying the environment, um, giving military too much power, concentrating power too much and taking it away from the individual. And what's so funny is I just started watching a Unabomber documentary series the other night. And dude, it's kind of scary because he was an insane, like, like I, I don't even, I don't mean insane in the negative way. I mean, he was insanely intelligent. Like he was at Harvard, I think when he was 16 he was. and he became a professor at Berkeley in mathematics and shit. And he like he was a super genius. And his manifesto is a work of like, I haven't read it, but you could just tell they were interviewing some academics in it. And they were like, 
yeah, it's an impressive piece of work. And it's yeah. it's it's pretty good. It's pretty a, like legit good. There's so a couple of things that pop up real quick that because the threads were falling away, I want to um, chime in real quick. The first thing is that there's a part of technology that feels like it's Lucifer in the sense that it's begging you to blame it because that robs you of your responsibility yeah. to be an alchemist. So that was right. one of the things that popped up. Like, bruh, for everyone listening, whatever you blame, you forfeit your power to right. that right. if you took the responsibility for would transform you. And then the other part, the thing that I forgot is that that amorphati moment where, um, what did Nietzsche call it? The what health? The great health. The great health. So I've had this experience a couple of times, and I'm sure that you have too, where it, it's almost always in a psychedelic experience, but but not always. And But there's this felt sense that is undeniable of the perfection of everything that has ever happened in my life mm -hmm, that has mm -hmm. brought me to this moment right now. And I would say that's the feeling of the great health. And when you feel that once, maybe you can dismiss it. But when you feel it, twice or three times, there's this thing now where I have felt it enough times that now when I suffer, like when I'm going through something that makes me weep, there is this part of me that is so clear that is smiling, that is loving the fact that I am feeling this deeply because it knows mm -hmm. that there will be another point in the future of that big health moment where I will feel with unshakable truth somatically in my body that everything that has ever happened to me in my past has been perfect and has brought me to this moment. Yeah. And when you feel that two or three times, you can't shake it anymore. It's almost like you cannot, you can no longer deny <clears throat> that you know that you don't even get to choose what you feel is a morafati. Yeah. Yeah, and and that reminds me too of. Do you remember what what Nietzsche's ultimate symbol of becoming and an awakening kind of was? It was the baby, a baby. Or the child? yeah, the baby, yeah. the baby. Yeah, I mean that's what a baby does, right? Is it just feels deep emotions and is like yeah. fully present in those emotions? And yeah. he's he's not, you know, like the for the the precursors of the of the baby is the camel and the lion, and we we don't have to get into all of that, yeah. but the lion is essentially you know, um, doing, no, the camel is the one that's doing the duty of the establishment. Like it's carrying the load. It's, it's trying to be a great servant for whatever it is that it's serving, you know, the, the nation, the church, the whatever. And that's how it's deriving all of its meaning. And then the lion is like the aggressor. It's attacking, it's, it's testing the boundaries, it's causing revolutions, it's whatever. And, and then evolving beyond that, is just being in the moment as like a child, like you said, with your emotions, with that, with feeling the depth of what it is to be alive and just expressing whatever it is that you're feeling. And I think that that, that's, that overlap is, is unavoidable. That was, that was a good one, man. That was a good, and see then, what I'm saying? This is why I'm getting yeah. started in Nietzsche. Nietzsche is like, God, it's just like, fuck man, that you, you thought of that too. You wrote about Fucking that too. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's how you make the most beautiful castle is to find your way back to the baby. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. So I think I, I totally agree too about what you said about be careful where you offload 
your agency because it is really easy to blame some external force for all of your maladies to use that word again or like you know all of your shortcomings it's like you know the, and and when that's really spun out of control that's how you get you know deep conspiracy theorists and incels and people who are you know just blaming fill in the blank for everything that's wrong with the world and i think technology is a convenient scapegoat in that way too and of course i'm not saying that i agree with Kaczynski or that, you know, he's, he's like this bulletproof philosopher. Like clearly what I learned from this documentary series is that he was an incredibly intelligent, violent, fucked up person. And when you have a violent, fucked up person, they create mythologies too. And they yep. create mythologies all about why they need to kill. Yep. And that, and, and, that doesn't mean that everything that he wrote about was wrong. In fact, like I was, I was, what I was trying to point to is there's so much insight in what he was pointing out, but then what he did with it was so just mind-bogglingly like, so you really think sending some bombs through the fucking mail to scientists is right. going to fix this? The way that like, I see it is he saw one of the biggest looming dragons coming for mm -hmm. the village. Mm -hmm. But instead of teaching the villagers how to fight dragons, he began sending firebombs to the magicians he believed were was calling the dragon. Right. right. No, no. I think that what is so um, attractive about what he did is he articulated the motherfucking scales on the wings of the dragon coming. But his solution to how to fight the dragon was to kill people in his tribe. No. The way that you fight the dragon is you teach people how to fucking fight dragons. And the thing that, like, whenever someone starts to talk to me about a conspiracy theory, a couple of things happen. The first thing that happens is the person talking to me, if I look at their life, they don't believe what they are saying because if they believed what they were saying, they would act and live their life very differently. So it already feels like, okay, this is coming from an immature part of them that wants to create a story that allows them to not try as hard as they could try. Because if people really believed the conspiracy stories that they tell you, like, they, wouldn't they would be, be. They would be Ted Kaczynski, <laughs> right? They be, or they, they would be yeah. doing something drastic. But the fact is, they go to their cubicles, they live in their homes, they're on their computer, they're on their phone, they're playing video games. And a part of me is like, like that. There's a lack of respect from me coming to them because I can feel that they don't live their life as if they believe it's true. So that's one thing. But the other thing that comes up for me is. I thank my dragons. Like how shitty would the video game be if there were no dragons? So if every conspiracy theory is true, like the thing that I think about is if Viktor Frankl can say that fucking quote in Auschwitz, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is the last of the human freedoms is our ability to choose our attitude in any given situation. <clears throat> if he can write that in Auschwitz, like fucking bring me dragons if these conspiracies are true i'm going to be i'm going to seek to be one of those men in auschwitz who gave his bread to his brother and did not give up did not lament 
did not cry woe, but tried to live in a way that could help the people who couldn't be strong enough live another day. And it's like, if technology is the thing that's going to fucking destroy us, I will walk towards that dragon with my brothers and my sisters doing the best that I can every day. And the fucking people in the village who were like, I fucking told you so, but they're not out there. Like, I have no time for you. Yeah. Yeah. And let's not forget, you can train dragons. You can ride dragons in most yep. mythologies. They're, they're, they're yep. intelligent beings that have powers that if you have the patience and the bravery to interact with them, you can turn yourself into some sort of super dragon riding being, you know, and if and you can do that with technology, clearly, you and I are, are getting we're, we're on this bucking digital dragon right now, blasting binary through microphones at each other trying to do whatever we're doing. And for me, that makes it all worth it, man. Maybe maybe that's like incredibly foolhardy to say that, you know, we're we're off the back of factory workers and billions of wasted hours of man hours of life or whatever that have been pissed away frivolously on Candy Crush and Xbox Live or whatever, but it's all okay because we're having this one podcast conversation. Yeah, I understand that that sounds ridiculous, but at the same time, podcasts for me have been such a life-alteringly positive, inspiring thing that to me, the frivolous bullshit is well worth it. And I think that if I don't enjoy using this kind of means to an end argument regularly, but if ultimately this thing brings us to the next level of consciousness or to the point of being an interplanetary species or, you, you know, like living the next great adventure because we invented some new way to interface with the universe via technology it was worth it it was worth it to me and that i and i'm i'm settling on that yeah the thing that comes up in me man is <clears throat> i anchor to i interact with humans every day i can feel that every human i've ever met is not yet who they could be and that i can act in a way that both brings a little bit more of who I could be out of me and a little bit more of who they could be out of them. And then everything else is just like other people's stories that don't really inspire me. Like I have no idea what our species is going to look like in 100 years. I have no idea what it's going to look like in 200 years. I have no idea what technology's effects are going to have or what global warming is doing or whatever. I anchor to, and maybe I'm just a hammer that sees nails, I'm anchored to who are the people that can see my sandcastle and that I can see theirs and how can I help them mm -hmm. create the dopest motherfucking sandcastle in a way that brings them the most joy and reduces the most suffering and like let the other pieces fall where they may because it comes down to what is the part of the garden that I can tend and once I am able to tend that perfectly then I'll expand my garden. And there's the, and if people feel called, because I know that there are people who their fucking soul's calling is to explore, like, how do you reorganize culture? How do we change the laws to help people who are disempowered? And if you feel called to that, fucking do it, 
because I, I'd understand the obsession of doing the thing that you are called to do. But most people that I've met in my life who concern themselves with things beyond their garden, I can see their garden and it is not motherfucking tended. <laughs> and when they talk about things outside of their garden, I can feel like if I'm patient, I can sit with them and try to explore like why it is they're not looking at their garden. But when I'm not patient, I f I'm, I'm, I'm angry. And, and the anger is like, you are, you are ignoring the things that you could improve to masturbate into the wind about things that you have not yet acquired any ability to improve. <laughs> and I love you and I see you, but man, look at your garden right here, right now. Like, how do you treat your partner? How do you take care of your body? How do you treat the person that you meet when you're upset and you're at the grocery store? Are you in truth with your parents? Like, get that shit right. And then, you know, expand the garden. I'm with you, man. I'm with you. That, that kind of feels like a period. Uh, and, and I'm okay. I'm okay with giving you the last word because it was a good one. Thank you so much, man. I like, I know that we're going to be able to do these for the rest of our lives. And um, thank you for sharing your consciousness with mine. And I know that it's going to help people. Likewise, man. And I truly do love and appreciate you and each of these opportunities to meld minds via whatever media vessel <laughs> we happen to be participating in. Um, you like, you know, I mentioned before, you know, what would my life look like without this outlet and the people I've met? And you're, you're right at the top of the list, man. It's, it's, we don't get to hang out as much as I'd like or pod even as much as I'd like, but you're definitely right in that, that soul brother crew group for me. And I truly appreciate you, man. I feel the same way, brother. I feel that there's like a podcasting brotherhood and you are right at my shoulders. I'm with it. I'm with it, brother. Love. Love you all. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the quarantine apocalypse. <laughs>